You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So I have a special guest this afternoon whose name is Mark Furman, and he is a labor attorney, and I have known Mark for many, many years. Mark, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you. So I wanted to do this episode because many years ago, I watched you do a presentation on union salting, and I thought it was not only unique, but very informative. And I was wondering if we could talk about it, given the rise of union salts that we're seeing across the landscape. And you and I have worked in the construction industry off and on for years. Um, I believe that presentation that I watched you do is more geared towards construction, but we're seeing a lot of salting going on in normal employers, manufacturing, et cetera. But maybe we could cover the overt and the covert salts. Happy to do it. Peter, as you said, there are uh, there's a basic concept of where did salting come from, and for a million years up to that point, um, organizing took place primarily under the radar. The company would hire a mole, somebody they didn't know was a subversive or a union organizer, um, bring them into the ranks. And then after that individual got comfortable with the group and ingratiated themselves with the group, they would, he would slowly or she would slowly start uh, giving the spiel. The way these things usually begin, whether it's a construction company or a manufacturing company, retail establishment, typically on, uh, after work on after payday, um, everybody meets up at the corner bar and lo and behold, that's where the SALT or the union official will set up their base camp. And they don't just jump in and say, I'm a union official, I want to represent you. He just buys everybody drinks after a while and ingratiates himself with the people in the bargaining unit. And he befriends them all. And then after several Friday nights, uh, you know, he's starting to get the confidence of the people and they're starting to complain about things at work, which is typical when people get together at the end of the week and when they've had some alcoholic uh, encouragement, uh, the tongues loosen up, and before you know it, they're complaining about what happened bad to them that week or what stupid thing the company may have done. It is at that point that the salt will just gently uh, say, well, you know, I, I have some solutions to help you fix that. They all listen intently, and he talks about things like, well, have you thought about complaining to this or that, or how about if you, you know, did you complain to the company? Typical response is, well, we do, but nothing ever happens. So it sounds to me like you would need to have somebody help you in that regard. And guess what? That's what I do for a living. I'm a union representative, and it sounds to me like you need to level the playing field more and be able to stand up to your employer when your employer is doing things that you don't like. And he goes into the whole process about if you sign this little card, it's the size of maybe a three by five card, and it's a union authorization card, because I can't represent you unless you sign this card authorizing me to represent you. And then with enough of those cards, 30% to be precise of the proposed bargaining unit, we'll talk about that in a minute, the uh, union official can then petition the National Labor Relations Board and file an election petition. Routinely, however, the unions don't go for a mere 30% because once the unions are uh, outed, if you will, and everybody knows what's happening, Employers, especially those in the construction industry, 
who are used to doing workarounds every day on job sites, this is just another workaround they have to deal with. So they start putting on a counter campaign by engaging folks like you, Peter, to uh, to commandeer that uh, that program and to make sure that um, everybody's doing things correctly. So what unions do is they don't go for 30 percent. They don't go for 40 or 50. They go for 70 or 80 or in small companies, 90 to 100 percent. They want everybody. And so now you've got, that's how the basic process works. But what SALTs do is they don't want to just pick up cards, which is what used to happen before salting was, uh, was popular. They would infiltrate the workforce. And what they would do is initially what a SALT would do would be a SALT would dare you to hire them. A SALT could come in the door and a SALT might come in with three or four people, one of whom might be holding a, a video camera and videotaping the entire process. Now, like most people, when you put a mic in front of them, uh, they get really nervous and they close their mouths. When you put a video camera in front of them, they get all flustered, they turn red, and they close their mouth. So we've had over the years uh, union officials come in with people with cameras. The employer has no idea what to do because, frankly, nobody ever came in their offices with a video camera wanting to record everything. And employers don't realize, I'm sorry, go ahead. Those would be the more overt salts, right, as opposed to the Those covert. would be the overt salts, which is what we would see back in the mid-90s when salting really started to take a foothold. Um, we don't see that kind of, I'll call it, uh, cavalier or obnoxiousness. We, ha we see it in other forms, but we don't see it that way. And so now when a salt comes in, they're way more clever than that. It used to be assault would show up and he'd be wearing a union uh, baseball cap. He'd be wearing a union T-shirt. He'd have the union satin bowling jacket on. He'd have a union button on his uh, coat. And you had no doubt in your mind that this person was a pro-union individual. And all he did was just walk in the door. You don't know if he's a union official, he's a union member. You don't know anything. Now they're a little bit more, um, I will say, hard to figure out, a little more camouflaged. And when they come in, they may have a union T-shirt on, but it's underneath their work shirt. So you can't see it. During the course right. of the day, if you hire them, maybe they unbutton it a little bit and you can see what's, under, what's written on the T-shirt, where you can see the logo of a particular union involved. But now what they do is they're, they're much more clever, more wily, and uh, they know that if they knock on the door and they say, are you hiring, and they show up with the uh, attire that I just described, the typical employer would say, we don't have any openings. That's not necessarily the best answer. You can get where you got to go with a better answer than that. And so they turn the individual down. And even though the individual says, can I just come in and fill out an application? Don't bother. We're not hiring. And then the next day, they fax over or email over an application from a guy that has no particular union connection. And we'll call him Barney Rubble. So Barney Rubble sends over an email that looks like he's perfect for the job. He can do anything that the company can do, and he's on his application or his resume, rather, he's not a union member, and the word union never appears anywhere. So the employer thinking, well, I'd rather hire Barney Rubble than the salt who came in yesterday. What the employer doesn't realize is that they're one and the same people. Barney Rubble actually came in his normal union uh, costume, so to speak, and the employer never got any information from him, so the employer doesn't know that that's really Barney Rubble. So what we would recommend 
when someone comes in is that there be a, um, a sign-in book. You'd be amazed how many people come in, and these are all cases that I've had, so I'm not you know, making up absurd situations. These absurd situations have happened to clients. So what happens is you have no legitimate need for anybody, and you say to the individual, I don't really have any openings. Maybe you want to check back with me in a couple of weeks. And the fellow goes outside, and outside, what you don't see is a club cab F-150 pickup where he's got three or four of his buddies, and they drive right to the Labor Board, National Labor Relations Board, and they file unfair labor practice charges. And they claim they were discriminated against because of their union affiliation. Now, you only know of one guy that came to your office that day, because generally speaking, people don't any longer come to offices to apply unless they're told to come in. They don't walk down the street and knock on doors as in years past. So the employer then gets an unfair labor practice charge several days later that said that the company had discriminated against the salt, and there's three or four other names in there. And the employer goes, am I nuts? One person came in the door. Why are there five people on this charge? Because when the salt who left your office went outside, he told his travel mates what had happened, and they were also put out, and they weren't given the opportunity to apply for work. So they're added to the unfair labor practice charge. What makes this even more interesting is when you have a sign-in book, and let's say Fred Flintstone signs in, where you ask the people to sign in, and then he says, I'm here to apply for a job, and you tell Fred Flintstone, who's dressed in union paraphernalia, we don't have an opening. Then he goes outside, and he tells his buddies, or he doesn't tell his buddies. It doesn't really matter. But two or three days later, you get an unfair labor practice charge from a guy named Barney Rubble. You go, Barney Rubble? I never had anybody come to my office named Barney Rubble. I have no idea who that is. Well, a little bit of a hint, it's Fred Flintstone. They come and they, they disguise themselves. They pretend that they're somebody that they're not. And... I guess if you want to call it fun, this is what a labor lawyer calls fun, a client calls you up and tells you of the situation, and you go, oh my gosh, I just had that same guy, Fred Flintstone, apply at your competitor three miles away. And what did you tell him? Well, I had him fill out an application, and I said I would get back to him. You did the right thing. Now I say to the new client who... Uh, is now being faced with uh, Fred Flintstone out in his lobby. I said, bring Fred in and interview him. Have him fill out the company's application for employment, even if he leaves you a resume. Because a resume is what an applicant wants to tell a prospective employer, which is not necessarily what a prospective employer wants to learn about the individual. I, I can't tell you how many times. Well, we just take a resume. If resumes were, were common and standard, that'd be different, but they're not. So we have them jump through the hoops. We have them sign something called a request for an application form. And it is essentially the company's very detailed hiring policy. And it starts out with the employer is an equal opportunity, non-discriminatory employer. So now I'm even telling the labor board, if they can't figure it out, that we don't discriminate. I'm telling the EEOC that we don't discriminate, the state employment agencies that we don't discriminate. And then it goes on and it says, we base our hiring decision on a variety of lawful considerations, and we list them. Appropriate work history, experience, any certifications that you may have, etc. And we include in that list Probably the most important thing, and that is references. Most employers routinely tell me, 
I don't ask for reference because they're going to give me the telephone number of their Uncle Joe. Well, right. I want the telephone numbers of prior employers, places where the individual has worked, because a typical salt makes up their resume, doesn't remember what they put, and when they go in and you interview them based on their application and their resume, they don't remember what they said. Typically, the two don't match up anyway, and now you probably are faced with, I just don't have a good feeling about this person. Doesn't remember where they work, doesn't know how long they were there, very vague about everything. Why? Because they never worked there. That's why. So, so well, what you in, do is, and you're hitting a key point that a lot of employers don't do, which you just said. They don't check references. When I give seminars, the first thing I say is, how many employers in the room check references? Now, if you've been to a, a seminar that I put on before, you're going to put your hand up, yes, whether you did or not. Right. But overwhelmingly so, employers don't check references. And then they have a change in personnel in HR, and maybe they used to check references, but the new person doesn't really check references. Bad right. move. Very, very bad move. Hey, Mark, let me ask you a question, point of clarification. So you laid out a scenario where you've got Barney Rubble coming in or Fred Flintstone coming in, filling out the application and or not receiving an application and walking out and three or four others, they filed charges against the employer. And the way you laid it out is a day or two later, but they actually have up to six months to file charges, right? That is correct. Salts tend to file charges more quickly, but they have six months to file it. I seem to recall a union director of organizing not far from where you are that, and I'm going to leave his name out of it and the union out of it, but used to wait like three, four months and get these mom and pops, you know, yep. file the charges later, get the mom and pop companies on the hook for back pay. Substantial back pay. Correct. Yeah. And, and that's another tactic that they would use. But you have to remember that a union salt has an obligation, like any other person has an obligation, to mitigate their loss. So if they only went to the one mom and pop and then went home and, and watched TV all day long, and now five months later they decide to file a charge, the labor board's going to say, what did you do in the intervening five months to find other employment? They have an obligation to do it. What they wind up doing is they go to other mom and pops, now they've got a whole bunch of mom and pops that they can file charges against. And I had a situation a number of years ago where this one individual was going around filing charges against essentially all my clients that were in a particular industry. So by the time they got to the last one, I knew it was coming, I had forewarned that client, you're going to get, you know, Gomer Pyle's going to walk in the door, he's going to want to fi uh, uh, file an application for employment, no matter what he says, say, yeah, let me take a look. And make sure you double-check everything. So I knew that they were lying on their applications because they put the name of a former employer who happens to be a former client of mine that went out of business when the guy retired eight, nine years before. And he put that he was there three weeks before. Reason for leaving? Company closed up, owner retired. Didn't think that you could would call, and if you call, you got a confirmation that the line had been disconnected. What Gomer Pyle didn't realize is I represented that company. I knew that he had closed eight years before, and I knew that he was lying when he said he he was laid off three weeks before. So sometimes you get lucky in that kind of a scenario. And then I had the client call the individual up. I said, how much fun do you want to have with this guy? And the client was up for the thrill of the hunt and said, I'm willing to uh, have a good time with this fellow. Okay. Call him up and ask him who he worked for at his prior employer. What was the owner's name? And he came up with answers that made no sense. I really don't know the owner's name. 
I don't know how many smaller employers didn't know who their employees were and vice versa. It's almost right. impossible. Right. I said, did you have a supervisor? Oh, yeah, I had a supervisor. What was his name? His name was Buddy. So all everybody there had a nickname. Nobody had a formal name. And then I would push him and say, so you last worked there you know, three weeks ago? Yeah. Well, that's funny because eight years ago, I went to the liquidation sale and bought a lot of the stuff that the company unloaded when they were going out of business. So, Mr. Applicant, I can do one of two things. I can either tell you that I'm not going to consider you for employment because you're an outright liar, or I can say, do you want me to lie to you or do you want me to be straight with you? Invariably, the salt will say, I want you to be straight with me. Well, well Mr. Pyle, I'd like you to be straight with me. If you're going to be hired by me, I'm not playing games. I need you to do X craft that I do. I don't need you to play games with me. I don't need you to outwit me and outsmart me. I don't need any of that. I need you to be doing your job. That's what our customers are paying for, our expertise in doing the work that we do. If you can promise me that if I hire you, you'll stop playing games, you can start tomorrow morning. Now, Gomer Pyle was absolutely flustered because he never expected to actually get hired. The typical salts today do not want to get hired. They want to find a reason that they can file an unfair labor practice charge so they can get back pay for doing essentially nothing. So the clients These said, are construction salts for the most part. This would, be, this would be in the construction industry. Right. Um, but it could work the same way in manufacturing, retail sales, hospitality. It doesn't really matter. The, the, um, the rules and the game plans are the same. It's a, it's a game with a ball. And all basic games with a ball have basic, you know, common rules. And this would be one of them. So the client said, I'll call you up at, uh, you know, after 4 o'clock today when I have my work set for tomorrow, and I'll tell you where to report. And so the client called him up, got the guy on the phone, and he said, look, you've been very straight with me, and while I'd like to come and work for you, you seem like a nice guy, I want to tell you that I'm really a union organizer, and... You seem like a nice guy. I don't want to put you through that. So I'm turning down your offer of employment. But thank you very much for treating me with respect. Now, I said from the beginning, when the person walks in the door, before you even say hello, you have them sign the visitor's log. The visitor's log is going to have their name, or at least the name that they're using at the moment, and address, because you have no idea if it's a correct address, and you want them to put a telephone number and or email address involved. Why? Because sometimes the people will grab your uh, application form and run out the door and run down the street. They go back to their offices. In the, in the uh, union office, they print out 50 copies of the application. Then they have some poor administrative type in the office start filling in the names of 50 union members, and they put them in an envelope and send them to the company and say, oh, in accordance with your request that uh, I provide you with the names of some of my friends, I want you to know that enclosed are the applications for all 50 of my friends. And you have no idea what this person's talking about because the letter comes from you know, Fred Flintstone, not Gomer Pyle. You have no idea what's going on. So what we do is we have the client send to me all of the applications, you know, uh, email them to me so I have an electronic copy. I tell the client, do not keep a copy. Don't look at them. Don't keep a copy. Just send them to me. You're going to put them back in an envelope. I dictated a cover letter. 
dear Mr. Union so-and-so, I don't know how you got the impression that I was looking to hire 50 people. I never spoke to anybody from your organization, let alone ask them to send me 50 applications. If someone is interested in coming to work at my company, they must appear in person, that's the key, appear in person, fill out my request for an application form, and then fill out my application form, even though they may have filled one out already. In my experience, how many people have actually followed through with that? If the answer you're thinking of is none, you would be correct. Because hmm. you called their bluff. Didn't do anything unlawful. I just said, I don't take applications this way. Now, when you have a hiring policy, and I started to tell you what would be itemized in that hiring policy, what we base our decisions on, lawful considerations, etc. We also put that we don't discriminate. So I have a basic EEO statement. We don't discriminate on the basis of age, race, sex, color. I used to do this in one breath when the list was shorter and I was much younger. Um, uh, race, ethnicity, uh, non-job related, handicap. And at the very end of the shopping list, I put union affiliation and in parentheses, if any. And clients go, why would I put that in there? Because union affiliation is a protected category. No, it's not the same as race, not the same as disability, not the same as age. I get all of that. But it's treated under the labor statutes. It's just another form of discrimination. You don't go to the EEOC to file a complaint on union discrimination. You go to the labor board. So right. that's the distinction. Now, if for some reason a charge is filed against the company, the labor board is going to ask for a copy of your hiring policy and or your employee handbook. And it's very nice to have the third or fourth line of your hiring policy say, we do not discriminate, and you have that shopping list, or uh, we recognize the employee's rights under Section 7 of the NLRA. I could write it out, but I'm not going to write it out. Section 7 of the NLRA is that provision that talks about the employee's rights under the National Labor Relations Act. And it includes the rights of the employees to band together for their mutual aid and protection. There's a shopping list of things that they can do. One of them is to uh, join a union or to bring a union in. And one of the last things is or to refrain from any of the above. So they can do it or not do it. It's not a consideration for an employer to think about. It's that simple. So now when the labor board gets that, I get to say, look, this client doesn't discriminate. They even tell the people that. So what do I put into this request for an application form? I take the hiring policy that I'm telling you about, which has all kinds of other uh, attributes that we'll talk about in a minute. And what I do is I reverse the order of some of the paragraphs. And I take the first paragraph of the hiring policy, put it at the end, because it's a two-page document, because we've improved it and improved it and improved it until we got to finally to two pages. The second page has a signature line. And that's right below the part that says, we don't discriminate and we respect the rights of our employees under Section 7 of the NLRA. So I don't want the employee seeing it on the first page and then when I produce it at, at trial, they say, well, that first page wasn't there when I signed it. So when I show them the request for application form that they signed, I ask them if this is the form that they got. Is this the form that they signed? Yes, yes, yes. Can you look, you know, four lines above your signature, read that sentence. The company does not discriminate based on, uh, you know, all these things. And we respect the rights of our employees under Section 7 of the NLRA. So you saw it and you signed it anyway, right? Yes. So now I've got 
on the record that the company is not a bunch of bad actors, typically experienced union salts, because this document is now in, in, out, in the, out with the general prison population, it's everywhere now, um, a lot of them have seen it already. So it is really a prophylactic. So when they see it, sometimes it goes, go, oh, hell, and they walk out the door. But remember, what did I tell you? I had them sign in. So I know when I look on the, on the registry and I say, there's a Barney Rubble, we then write a letter to Barney Rubble. Yes, we go through that effort. Dear Mr. Rubble, you came in earlier today inquiring about a job. When I told you that we didn't have an opening, I still suggested that you fill out an employment application that we could leave on file. You said no thanks and you left. Well, in order for us to consider you for future employment, you must return and complete the employment application. Best of luck in your future endeavors. All I did was confirm the fact the guy left. Because what he's going to do when he complains, he's going to tell his business agent, and his business agent's going to get a very different story by the time it, it leaves his mouth and it filters through the business agent and makes its way onto an unfair labor practice charge, you wouldn't recognize anything that happened. So that's what we do. And we make sure that we button up every single loose end. Now, I'm pleased to say that clients that follow this policy, and there's been a lot of clients, have never had a problem losing a ULP for salting. Haven't lost one yet, and I don't want to start now. But the policy is more than just what I told you. We like to have a policy that talks about no moonlighting. I asked the clients, do you have an anti-moonlighting policy? Well, I really don't care what they do when they're not working for me as long as they're not working for a competitor. I can't think of a bigger competitor than working for a union that covers the people that are in your industry. But I didn't say that. All I said was, if you're, let's say, a service contractor, where you go out and service HVAC systems, and it's Friday afternoon in the middle of summer, and you get a call from your big customer, a large office complex, and they're complaining that their HVAC system is down, and they're sweating bullets, literally. And so you want to send your employee out there to fix it, to troubleshoot it, and to fix it. The last thing you want to hear from that employee is, well, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. By the time I get out there and diagnose the problem, I got to get back because I tend bar on Delaware Avenue in Philadelphia. So our position is when you work for our company, not only is your employment primary, but it must be exclusive. And accordingly, our employees who are full-time, I didn't say part-time, full-time can only work for us and no one else. Now, when a union business agent applies, they have a job already. I'm not asking them to give that job up. I don't want to know about that job. So if they raise it, I go, I don't want to know. All I know is that when you work for this company, because we have call-out work, emergency work, we have, we're working late, we're doing inventory and stuff like that in the warehouse, we need to know that we can count on you to be there. And then the employee goes, sure, I can do that. So they lie when they tell you they don't have another job when you know that they do. And then so the advantage of is that, the one advantage of that is, if there is a back pay risk, you now can take advantage of their business agent salary, whereas before you couldn't do it. So I, I think that Jennifer Abruzzo at the NLRB has been trying to crack down on the non-compete clauses. Is that correct? That's correct. That's absolutely correct. And for that reason? I don't know about for that reason, because this isn't a non-compete agreement. It's just our policy. We don't allow you to work for somebody else. The non-competes that we see, and we write non-competes, and we engage in non-compete litigation on a regular basis, 
um, is when somebody leaves the company and they uh, load up their laptop with all of the company's, uh, you know, guarded and protected um, information, confidential information, and they walk across the street to, to the competitor and they say, look what I got. I know all their customers. We can underbid them. I know all their pricing structure. Will you hire me? That's really what that non-compete is geared to do. We have situations. There's, I've not seen a labor board decision that called a, an anti-moonlighting policy unlawful per se. Because we put in their reasons, and our reasons would be because of customer demands, emergencies, unexpected overtime situations, we must insist that if you work for us, that you only work for us if you're a full-time employee and you have no other outside employment. Keep in mind, if I'm legitimately tending bar on Delaware Avenue and I go there after my shift ends at work at 4 o'clock and now I go and I work till 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm not going to be the most alert individual when I report back to the plant at 7 o'clock the next morning. So there's productivity considerations, there's safety considerations, and so on and so forth. More than enough information there to support the logical uh, conclusion that we don't permit outside employment. I'm not even going to raise the issue of somebody's got their own grass-cutting business on the weekends, and then they, they pull their back muscle on the weekend, they manage to come into work, and as soon as they come in, they fall over in the locker room and say, I hurt my back. We're not even getting into that stuff. And that exists also. Right. I just, I just looked up real quick, and there's something from February 12th that the GC wants to crack down on moon, anti-moonlighting policies. So they haven't done it yet. I haven't seen it. And I don't know what, the, I don't know what Jennifer Abruzzi has in mind because I've met her. She doesn't look like that evil of an individual. Um, but she certainly is to the left of AOC and Uncle Joe and Bernie Sanders. She's to the left of them. So yeah. you, have to, you have to understand that that's what you're dealing with. Now, right. we have issues where you come in, you sign the, um, you sign the sign-in book, and you, um, you jump through all the hoops. All the hoops have been set on fire as they would for anybody else that walks in the door or wants to be employed by the company. They fill out the forms. If there's a drug test before they get hired, they take the drug test. If there is a, a driver's license involved where they, where they drive a large enough vehicle to warrant a, a CDL, everybody's driver's licenses get checked. But you only do all of that after you have offered employment. You don't waste your time giving somebody a drug test. You don't waste your time giving somebody a physical. You don't do any of that until you go, I want that person. I'm willing to take a chance on that individual. Something you say when you hire everybody. It's always going to be a chance. So now the issue is uh, you've, you've done all of these things, and what you tell them after you've interviewed them, hopefully you'll be able to do your uh, reference checks before you have a face-to-face -face interview. What clients do is they make it easy for the applicant. Well, you came all this way, so while you're here, I might as well interview you. Don't do that at all, because you didn't have time to check the references. So then what you do is the person's jumped through every hoop, they've passed the reference check, they've done all of that, and now you're convinced, what am I going to do now? They're clearly a union salt, and I need somebody. And my position is, offer them a job. What's the worst that happens to you? You're going to put him in that part of the plant that maybe is less desirable, or he's going to be working alongside uh, the ever-ready bunny employee who just has one speed all out and who's going to be riding them the whole time. 
You can, you can do things that make sense for you. If they're on a construction crew, you don't have to put them on your biggest job, your largest job with the most employees. You can put them on the smallest job that only has two employees on it, one of whom is your nephew. You know, be smart about it so they can't infect the group. We had a situation where uh, the employer needed to stock a job site. They didn't have to come with a crane to make it easy to stack, stack the job with product. So they said to the uh, alleged salt, oh, our, our boom truck is on another job today. You're going to have to unload this stuff by hand. Don't worry. You have all day to do it. We're not pressing you because you know it's difficult to do. The next day, the business agent, he was a business agent. The next day, uh, or at the end of the first day, the company says, you really need to go home now and get a good night's sleep because tomorrow might even be tougher. And this guy looked like he was a walking dead man. He was so tired. <laughs> so at the end of the day, what did he do? He said, you beat me. I'm not coming back tomorrow. I'm not working for you so you can make money and put it into your pockets. So I quit. And we confirmed that with a letter to him. Never heard from him again. So don't be afraid to hire a salt because salts have a tendency, it's only a tendency, not to want to work at a non-union company. They've been raised in a union household where their grandfather, father, and all their aunts and uncles are in the union, all their cousins are in the union, and damn it, they're going to be in the union too. So they've always heard every night around the dinner table about some company that's out on strike uh, and the company's you know, evil and all this kind of good stuff. And so the individual's already programmed to not want to work in a non-union environment. So when you offer them a job and they turn you down, it's because they didn't want to work for you in the first place. So you call their bluff. Now, how long does a salt typically stay employed when you offer them a job? Sometimes they never show up to work. They never appear. Sometimes they appear, but don't make it past the 10 o'clock coffee break. Or they make it to lunch, but they don't come back after lunch. Or they make it to the end of the day, and you never see them again. I think the Guinness World Record is about two weeks. Right. And what do you do? You keep using them like everybody else. You make sure they don't sabotage your work. And you just keep a close eye on them. Like you would any new employee that you're not sure if they know what they're doing. Are you going to give them a $750,000, 120-ton uh, crane, throw them the keys and say, I'll see you back at the end of the day? No, you're going to have somebody go with them so you can be sure that that individual knows what they're doing and you feel comfortable with that. So when I started instituting this policy, as I say, now it's probably almost, almost 30 years to the day, um, you know, we used to see salting all the time. It was, it was like uh, an annuity for me. Ridiculous. Um, I've handled literally hundreds of salting cases. But when we have the policy in effect, the number of salting cases drop tremendously, even though there may still be the same number of salts because the salts recognize that this company has, I'll say acutely, uh, lawyered up in advance. But do not be afraid to hire a salt. Act lawfully. There was a company, um, and I remember hearing this years ago, and I think it was the CEO that was telling me this, that they hired a union salt. And the guy loved the company so much that he eventually came forward and said, look, you're probably going to fire me after this conversation, but I was here to salt you. And I really want to figure out how to quit the union so I can continue working with you. And well, I have a similar story 
where the union president, and this is in one of the more, this is one of the mechanical trades, came to work at my client. And he did the opposite. He wasn't there to sabotage work. He was there to show everybody that he's like, uh, he's like Jimmy Neutron, and he could do anything that you could come across on a job site. He did it better than anybody else. He did it more efficiently. And the company knew exactly who he was. And no matter what job they put him on, he did a fantastic job. And he comes to the union, uh, comes to the employer with a similar story and said, look, I know you're probably going to fire me, but, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a union organizer for this particular trade. And none of the people, congratulations, none of the people had any bad words to say about the company. They liked working here. And I couldn't get convinced a single individual to sign an authorization card. So I'm going to quit and move on to your competitors and see what I can sniff out there. The client was absolutely distraught. And he contacted the, the, uh, the individual and said, I don't want you to quit. You're easily the best employee that I have. I know, I hear that a lot. Thank you very much, but I really have to be going. Yeah, it's, it's a similar story. Yeah, you know, very, if, very similar. And I think the, the underlying premise there is if the company is doing everything right for their employees, you don't need to worry about salts. That is correct. If you if you do right by your employees, um, and do right sometimes has a different definition uh, as as defined by the employees versus the employer. Sometimes the employer thinks they're the greatest thing since sliced bread, and you know they say things like, "Well, you know, I give them forty hours of work every week." Right. Like somehow that is. Uh, that's going to cure all evils. Would you rather have 40 hours of hard labor or would you rather get paid more and work less? I'd rather get paid more and work less. Right. But the employer is fixed on, yeah, but, but we give you a, you know, a uniform. That's it. I'm making almost one-third less than what my union counterparts are making. <clears throat> An employer does not have to mimic union scale, and forget for a moment, again, in construction, prevailing wage issues when you're working on public projects. Just deal with normal manufacturing or hospitality. You have to pay enough that for the employee to say, for me to join the union is not worth it for me. I've got to pay dues. There's an initiation fee. I now have to be bound by another whole set of rules and regulations under the union constitution and bylaws. There's a loyalty oath. If you don't like what I'm doing, you can fine and penalize me. And yes, those fines and penalties are enforceable in federal court. And yeah. we've seen penalties go to, uh, Pete, I know you've seen these, they go from as little as $5 to 100% of what you earned in the employer that you should not have taken a job with. Yeah. Yeah, and especially all, in the trades. They're all enforceable. Yeah. So real quickly, um, I guess we should say the typical disclaimer. None of this is legal advice. You know, if you have a question, contact your labor attorney, right? Right. Absolutely. So, um, just, what, I'm just giving you homespun stories of what other poor clients have gone through. Right. So what we've seen over the last two, three years, uh, more pronounced than we have in years past, is these underground salts going into places like Starbucks or Amazon, et cetera. And in fact, um, and I was going to do a post on this and didn't, but like Starbucks, there's this young lady by the name of Jazz Brizak who started the entire Starbucks campaign, working for Workers United, and went into the store in Buffalo and started organizing. And I just saw a decision recently where Starbucks was required to bring her back. And even though she's gone off and she, I think she's, last I heard, trying to unionize Tesla. But it's one of those stories where, like, that's literally, or figuratively, I guess, throwing salt in Starbucks wounds. 
So having to, uh, yeah. So the big, the big thing is you can't really, well, shouldn't even say can't really, you cannot discriminate against salts. That is correct. Otherwise the remedies are back pay, reinstatement. If you want to buy out their reinstatement and offer them more money, typically it costs a lot more money. Plus so, the legal fees. Which, of course, we know are always very reasonable. Right. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of things to consider. And when clients call me up and they say, I've got a salt, and all I say is just make sure you follow your policies. If they're screwing up, they're coming in late, they're not getting their work done properly, you're going to treat them no differently than a non-salt who would do the same thing. And I make them prove to me that what they want to do is what they've done in the past. Because if a charge is filed, the labor board is going to issue a request for information that's going to ask the very same thing. So let me ask it first and see if we have a leg to stand on. Right. Consistency with the past practices. That's what it is. Yeah. Well, Mark Furman, I thank you so much for going through that. I listened to you, and I want to say it was close to 20 years ago, give a similar presentation. Probably at least 20 years ago. Yeah. So thanks so much for coming on Labor Relations Radio. It's my pleasure, Peter. Take care. So that was Mark Furman with the law firm Cohen Seglius sharing some information about union salting that I heard almost two decades ago. And I thought it was so unique that I wanted to have him on the podcast to share it with you. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. And if you want to reach out, you can reach out on X, the app formerly known as Twitter, at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great week. I'm just a man living in one eye stand to tell you what I need. Oh, Black Creek, take me to that place and wash my sins away. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.